Good morning. My name's Adam, and I am the uh, Director of Student Ministries here at Northwest. So I have the privilege every week to hang out with high school and middle schoolers. So that's a, that's a huge privilege, and it, it's exciting and gives me a lot of joy and energizes me. So, but today I get the privilege of standing up here and talking to you guys, talking about Jesus. What better topic could there be on a Sunday morning, on Palm Sunday especially, to talk about Jesus? Now, one of my favorite things about going to a restaurant besides eating is when you, when you go and you open a menu and there's a picture and you see it and you're like, man, that looks unbelievable. And um, my favorite experience of that happening is at IHOP. They have this thing called a Cinestack. I don't know if you've eaten that before, but the picture is like perfect. And um, when it comes out, it's better than the picture. So uh, it, it just destroys my expectations. It's got, you know, melted cinnamon and icing and whipped cream, and it's just like, it's unreal. But on the other hand, you go to a restaurant, and uh, there's a picture, and it's the same thing. I mean, it looks perfect. You know, they use all the fake ingredients and food dyes and make it, you know, all the angles and lighting and all that kind of stuff. And it comes out, and you're like, it's, uh, it's not what I ordered. You know, the, the meat is like sliding off the burger, and there's juice everywhere, and there's a pickle that I definitely did not order on my plate. And uh, the expectation then was uh, kind of, you know, not really, not really that good. So the other, yesterday actually, my father-in-law is here, and we're talking about um, infomercials. And uh, expectations, I think, always are higher than what you actually get in an infomercial. I saw the one yesterday of that hose that expands and I don't know if anyone bought that, but there's no way that thing can actually work like that. But they make it look so cool on the TV. And, you know, the micro touch trimmer, we see that like every staff lunch. They have this little thing that you can like trim your nose hairs and ears, ear hairs. And I just picture buying that and it like getting stuck in my nostril and like not being able to get it out. But expectations, right? We have, we have them all the time. It's, you know, our life is full of expectations. And sometimes they do let us down, but sometimes the result is is far better than what we imagined. All throughout Jesus' life, people had expectations of him and they expected him to be and do certain things. And it all started in the Old Testament when, when Israel was promised a Messiah and there was all these different promises about who he would be and when he would come. And so they all started kind of getting this idea and, and this expectation in their own mind of what he was going to, to do for them. Sometimes um, when it comes to Jesus, our expectations don't really line up, right? We, we kind of expect him to do certain things for us, and we expect him to, to act a certain way or to be something. And a lot, of times, a lot of times we are let down because we expect something different than who he is. But sometimes, though, our expectations are far exceeded by Christ, and we expect something, and he shows up, and you're like, man... I never would have imagined or expected that Jesus could do this in my life or that he could be this for me. So even we today have expectations of Jesus. And that was for sure the case on this day in history, which is, is Palm Sunday that we celebrate. So this morning, we're going to look at expectation versus reality. We're not going to have three or four points we go through. We're going to look at one big expectation of the people in, in his day. And then we're going to look at the one big reality of who he really was and why he came. In his Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy, J. Barton Payne itemizes 127 messianic predictions involving more than 3,000 Bible verses. 127 predictions about Jesus, the Messiah, in over 3,000 verses. And, and when you begin to pick and choose 
certain ones that kind of match what you want and what you expect, it becomes very easy to confuse the line between expectation and between reality. So if you, if you guys do have a Bible or if you have your phone or whatever you guys use to look at God's word, go ahead and pull that out. And we're going to go into Matthew 21 and look at the Palm Sunday story and look at the triumphal entry and kind of do some evaluation of expectation versus reality. So Matthew 21, Jesus and his disciples are getting ready to enter into Jerusalem. And this is, this is it. I mean, this is the beginning of the, the end if you will, for Christ. This is, this is the Passion Week as we know it, and it's about to begin. Christ is about to fulfill his ultimate goal of why he came to this earth. Now, one cool thing that I learned this week as I was studying is really just how, how much emphasis was placed on this last week in Christ's life in the Gospels. Matthew, in, in his Gospel, he devotes one-fourth of his Gospel to this last week, and Mark devotes one-fifth Luke is one-third, and John devotes half of his gospel to this last week. And if you think about that, it kind of makes sense, because it wasn't just the most important week in the life of Christ, but it was really the most important week in all of history. And so it's really cool that one-third of the whole entire gospel set, those four gospels, a third of them is devoted to the last week of Christ. So it's pretty cool. So Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11, and uh, we're going to go ahead and read through this and then talk about it a little bit. So in verse 1, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now to us, thousands of years later, it's really easy to kind of know why he was entering Jerusalem that day. But to these people, it was really kind of like the coronation of their king coming into Jerusalem. John MacArthur explains a historical coronation like this. The coronation of a monarch involved the display of great splendor and pageantry. The king would be dressed in the most expensive robes and jewels and would be driven through his capital city in an ornate carriage drawn by stately horses. Accompanying him would be his courtiers and foreign dignitaries, and following would be a large retinue of the nation's finest soldiers. At the climax of this event, the king would be presented with a scepter or would stand on a sacred stone or participate in some other ritual signifying the transfer of power and authority into his hands. Musicians would play and sing, and the crowds would break into spontaneous choruses of praise to their sovereign. Every part of the ceremony was designed 
to highlight the majesty, glory, power, and dignity of the king. And here comes Jesus, their king, riding on a donkey. Now, it wasn't very uncommon, really, for a king to ride on a donkey. If you look at 1 Samuel chapter 1, 32 through 40, you see that when David is anointing Solomon, he actually seats him on his personal mule and sends him to the, to the priests to be anointed. So that's, that was a common practice back then to do that. But why, why was their expectation? Okay, so we have the first expectation. Their expectation was that Jesus was coming and he was going to be an earthly king. He was going to come into Jerusalem and he was going to sit on the throne of David and he was going to reign and give Israel freedom forever. So why was that big expectation? Why was that, why was that what they were thinking he was going to be for them? In their minds, all the prophecies that they had heard and that they had read from the Old Testament and from the, you know, the first five books that they had would point to that, would point to an earthly king. When they thought the Messiah, they thought a king that would come and reign and give them freedom. That was their expectation. All throughout the, the history of, of Israel in the Old Testament, you see that they kind of go on this roller coaster. They're up and down. And, and when they're up, they have a king, you know, who's following after God and he's being obedient. But then when that king disobeys, they kind of go down and now, now they're in um, oppression and they're being ruled by, by an evil king. And then they have judges that come in um, and then they have kings and then they have prophets and they have all these people that rule over them. But it seems like every time they have someone like that, right after that, there's like kind of a downhill slide and they go into this, this area or this stage of, of oppression. And so when they hear that Jesus is gonna come, the Messiah is gonna come and they're gonna have a king who's gonna deliver them and rule and they're gonna have this ultimate freedom where there's not gonna be any more bondage or oppression, that is exciting. And so when Jesus is entering Jerusalem that day, that's their expectation. Here's some of the, the verses that kind of point in that direction. In 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13, God Making a covenant with David, he tells him this, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So that kind of sounds like it's gonna be an earthly ruler. Isaiah 9, 7 says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this day forth and forevermore. In Psalm chapter two, verse six, it says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, which Zion refers to Jerusalem. And then in Zechariah 9, 9, which is the prophecy in Matthew 21, it says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So they hear all these prophecies about this king who's going to reign and the government is going to be forever and he's going to bring peace and he's going to come riding on a donkey. I mean, you can picture being in their shoes and just saying, yeah, this is it. I mean, here he comes. We've heard about this guy. Now he's on a donkey, just as Zechariah said, and he's coming into Jerusalem to sit on the throne. Their expectation was he was going to reign as an earthly king. He was coming to give them freedom. The Roman oppression was done for, and here he comes to take his rightful place on David's throne in Jerusalem. And as he's coming, they're shouting, Hosanna. They're shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. 
Now, Hosanna, you have to understand this word kind of over history from Old to New Testament because originally in the Old Testament in Hebrew, the word Hosanna, what, what that meant was save us now. Save us now. But as time went on and as culture changed, that word Hosanna, when translated into the Greek, became more of a, look, he's coming to save us. It's like you can see you can see that, that freedom right in front of you and you can see that coming. John Piper explains it like this. It used to be what you said when you fell off the diving board, right? Hosanna. But it came to be what you would say when you see the lifeguard coming to save you. Now, I can remember years back, my brother and my dad and I were out riding ATVs on some trails. And, um, you know, we're ripping around. And one thing about my dad that's, that he's probably going to hate me for telling you this, but if you say the word dare or challenge him to do anything, like he'll do it. It doesn't matter what it is. We got multiple stories about that, I'll tell you later. But you say dare, and he, he does it. So we're, we're ripping around through these trails, and uh, my brother and I have a little bit, you know, we're kind of reckless and not really much fear. And we come to this point where you can either, either kind of go around and go up this hill, or there's this kind of a short little mini cliff right in front of you that you can just go right on up with your ATV. And so... We see it and we're like, all right, we'll try it. So we go up that thing and we kind of jump a little bit and my brother comes and he jumps and we go. So now we're heading down this trail and all of a sudden we hear behind us, help, help. And we're like, we turn around, we're like, what the heck? So we turn around and my dad had, <laughs> he had ridden his ATV and I'm, I'm not gonna get on the floor because my dad told me not to, but he's riding and he came up this hill and goes up and kind of did like this. He goes up and just sat like that. So his back is on the ground. He's still seated on the ATV as if he's riding. The wheels are spinning and he's just laying there. And he's like, help, help. And so I, I picture that story and I'm like, okay, the difference in Hosanna then is Old Testament, help. You know, and we turn around and New Testament is, yes, my strong, handsome sons are coming to save me. That's the difference in <laughs> Old Testament and New Testament. So they're looking at Jesus and they're shouting, yes, finally, freedom is here. Freedom is coming. Their king was there, but the reality of, of why he was there entering Jerusalem that day was not really matching up to what they expected. The reality of why he came was not their expectation. And it's interesting to note that as soon as, uh, as, soon as he came and they realized that he wasn't going to deliver them from the oppression of, of Rome and give them freedom in that manner, uh, they turned their back on him. And that is application in and of itself that we won't get too far into right now, but it sounds kind of familiar when you, you expect something of Jesus and when he doesn't deliver, you kind of turn your back to him. And uh, it's a sad thing, and that was the reality of, of what happened here. So if that's the expectation, the earthly king, what's the reality then of why he came? If you have the expectation, now the reality is this, he came to be a savior. Not the kind of savior they were looking for in an earthly manner, but a different kind of a savior in an eternal manner. So if you, if you guys are open there to Matthew, go ahead and flip over. We're gonna talk through two verses in John, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, John 3, 16 and 17. I'm gonna read those and then we're gonna talk about the reality of why Jesus was there that day. Here's what it says in John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved 
through him. So the reality of why Jesus was there, why he was on the earth, and why he was entering Jerusalem was to fulfill that. God loved the world. So here's, here's the history of it. So in the beginning, you have God creating Adam and Eve. You have him creating humanity in perfection. In the Garden of Eden, it was perfection. God walked with them. God talked with them. And one day, God said, here, you can eat anything you want except the fruit of the tree of, of the knowledge of good and evil. And they ate, so they disobeyed. So that relationship, that perfect relationship that we originally had in the beginning was broken at that moment. And because of that, God kicked them out. We have separation now from God. We can't get into that relationship. And because of what Adam and Eve did in the beginning, we now, as, as mankind, have inherited what we call sin, which is the separation from God. So now we have no hope. We can't do anything by ourselves. We can't do enough good things. We can't pay enough money. We cannot. It's impossible. We are completely hopeless in and of ourselves to get that relationship back. There's this big chasm between us and God. The original relationship that he intended us to have is now broken. So the only way for us to get that relationship back now is through someone coming and being a perfect sacrifice in our place. We deserve death. We deserve eternal separation from God. And he says, okay, but I love you so much, John 3.16 says, that I want that relationship back. I want that back. I don't want this distance between us. I want to be back in that perfect communion that we had in the beginning. So he says, here's how we're gonna do it. Jesus, I need you because you're perfect and you're God to go down to the earth and I need you to die in their place. That death that they deserve to, to die because of that separation, that sin, that disobedience. You need to go and make a way for them to come back into this relationship. And so Easter Sunday, next week, we celebrate Friday, the death of Christ, and then we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. He comes and he dies, and, and through that, he creates for us, he creates a way for us to come back into that relationship with him. And it's beautiful, and he dies, and we deserve that. And Christ says, no, I love you so much that I'm gonna do it for you. And I'm gonna create that way back into that relationship so that you guys can have that perfect and sweet relationship with God. And that's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. That, that's the reality of why Jesus came. He didn't come to be an earthly savior. He came to be a savior. He came to save us from that death that we deserve, from that separation that we deserve, and to bring us back into relationship with God. Now, I didn't always, I didn't always believe that growing up. I, um, I, I got really good at, at being religious, but not really including Jesus in that. I got really good at going through the motions. I went to church growing up, and uh, you know I was involved in the high school band, and I was involved in kids' ministry, and I was going on mission trips, and uh, because I had learned what it looked like to be religious on Sundays. Um, but here's the problem: I had that religion, but I didn't have Jesus. You know, I I said a prayer when I was eight. And um, I said a prayer because I was very fearful of the, the thunderstorm that was outside, and I wanted God to take that fear away. Um, but I didn't really understand truly who Jesus was or why he had, had really died for me. And, and I lived all my middle school, high school, early college life just going through motions and saying, you know what, this is, I guess, how it looks. I'm religious, and um, I kind of would keep Jesus in my pocket and say, I'm, I'm going to pull you out whenever I want to look religious, but then... You know, I don't need you anymore throughout the week and I'm gonna live my life. And I'm telling you what, 21 years old, God wrecked my life. And when I encountered Jesus, when I encountered him face to face and I saw the reality of who he was, man, I'm telling you what, 
There's nothing like that experience. And from that moment on, I mean, you, you might have heard Pastor Brian say this. You know, when I was in high school, last person he ever would have thought to be doing youth ministry would be me, especially over his kids. But I'm, I'm standing here right now, and he's, he's allowing me to, to preach to you and to share with you what's on my heart because when I encountered Jesus, he drastically changed my life. And that is why he came to this earth. So, yeah, that's, it gets me all fired up and emotional because it's real, and it's real. Maybe today, uh, this morning, you're sitting here and you're like, you know what, I, I've kind of confused Jesus in my life, and I don't really truly understand who he is. I don't really truly understand why he came. It's easy to, to be that way because the world we live in has completely distorted the image of Christ. He's the most famous person in human history. There's been hundreds of movies made about Christ. Musicians, Kanye West, Carrie Underwood, U2, The Killers, Green Day, all these people have sung about Jesus. He's been on TV, South Park, The Simpsons, kind of some, some uh, not so good TV shows, but in, in including him in that culture, it's easy to, to kind of start skewing who he is because everyone presents him in a different way. There's a movie called Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter and uh, Jesus and the Mexican wrestling star El Santos battle vampires. So there's something too that, uh, that's kind of cool. Even if you look at the religious side of things, we can't seem to get it right. Some, some liberal Christians in emergent churches will tell you that Jesus was just kind of a good man. He was, he was a good man, a good teacher. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses say that Jesus was Michael, the archangel. Mormonism teaches that Jesus was not God, but only a man who became a God. I'm not making this one up. You can look it up because I did just to make sure. <laughs> There's a Canadian nudist arsonist cult that the word Jesus in the Bible means a... Um, a hallucinogenic mushroom that you're to eat and then get naked and light things on fire. So that's, uh, that's kind of crazy. But, but the image of Jesus, even if, you, even if you narrow it down to our evangelical Christianity and look at the view of Jesus, it still isn't right. Here's a list that Pastor Kevin DeYoung came up with of all the Jesuses of our day. There's the therapist Jesus who helps you cope with life's problems, heals your past and tells you how valuable you are and not to be so hard on yourself. There's Starbucks Jesus, who drinks fair trade coffee, loves spiritual conversations, drives a hybrid, and goes to film festivals. There's open-minded Jesus, who's uh, the man who loves everyone all the time, no matter what, unless you're not as open-minded as he is. Uh, touchdown Jesus, helps people run faster, jump higher, and determines the outcome of the Super Bowl. Uh, martyr Jesus, died a cruel death so we could feel sorry for him. Hippie Jesus, teaches everyone to give peace a chance. Right? Imagine a world with no religion and uh, all you need is love kind of stuff. Um, Matt Rice gave me another one this week called Pinata Jesus. It's like we beat on him with our prayers, expecting him to open up with answers, just explode with what we need. And then um, my dad, the guy who tickles the ivories up here sometimes, gave me Foxhole Jesus, who you call on in your time of deepest desperation, and Santa Claus Jesus, who you plead with to give you things that you want that you know you don't really need. So all these ideas of Jesus that we have, that we need, we kind of make him into whatever suits us best. And through that, through the pop culture, through what we need and what we want, we have made Jesus into something that is unrecognizable. 
the true reality of who Jesus is has become completely blurred by culture, by our own me-centered attitude. We want Jesus to fit a mold, and we want to pull Jesus off the shelf when we need him and put him back when we don't and kind of dust, you know, dust him off every now and then. And I'm telling you what, when you experience the real Jesus, that's not who he is. When you have those expectations, that list, I promise you that when you encounter and meet the real Jesus, he will far exceed all of those. He will blow those out of the water and you will, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable what he'll do and how he'll reveal himself to you. And I don't know, maybe you can relate to some of those kinds of Jesuses this morning. I know I could um, when I was growing up. The complexity of who he is you know, we're never, we're never really going to understand him in this lifetime. We could, you could preach every Sunday on Jesus, and we're not really going to get him. But to start understanding him, to start seeing who he really is, to start seeing the reality of why he came and why we'll celebrate next week him dying and, and coming back to life after three days, you have to experience him first. You have to experience him first. And the big question I guess I want to leave you with, if you guys will flip over to Mark 8.27, Big question, because this is really, this is the, the, the most important question that you'll be faced with, I think. And that's the question that Jesus asks his disciples in Mark 8. And I didn't mark this one, so I gotta flip over there with you. Mark eight twenty seven through 29, here's what it says. Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Even in this passage, you see that people are confusing him. They think he's a great man. Maybe he performed some miracles, someone who's back from the dead. But people didn't understand who he was or why he had came. And maybe, maybe you kind of have a, a view, you know, of Christ like that. Is he someone that you pull off a shelf? Is he someone that you look to just in times of need and deep desperation? Or is he your savior? Do you believe that he came and, and died so that you could have that relationship back with God? Is that the Jesus that you've experienced? Is that the Jesus that you follow? Is that the Jesus that you love so deeply that it brings you to tears thinking about him? That's the Jesus I met. And, I, and my prayer for you guys, honestly, is that that's the Jesus that you encounter. And Peter got it right. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. The anointed one is what that means. You're the one that God set aside for a time, special, holy, for that purpose of coming and redeeming mankind to himself. That's why Jesus came. That's unbelievable. And I pray you've experienced that Jesus. If you haven't experienced that Jesus and you want to experience that, that real, raw, loving Jesus, after, we're going to sing some more songs here in a second, and after that, we're going to have just a couple elders down here if you have questions about Jesus. I'm telling you, if you're wondering, if you're confused, come down and talk to somebody, because you don't want to leave without experiencing and understanding the true reality of who Christ is, and why he really came for you and for me to redeem us. So let's pray, and then we're going to sing a few songs. And then we'll have that at the end. God, thanks for, uh, uh, for who you are and for loving us and for sending Christ for us. And God, I pray that, I pray that if there's people in here that, that truly haven't experienced 
your son for, for who he is and why he came. God, I pray that you would just, like you did my heart and my life, just wreck their hearts. Give them no choice and no option but to come and talk to someone to discover the real Jesus. Not the one that's distorted and confused in our culture, but the real Jesus that, that loves us so much that we could never even comprehend. So just thanks for this morning and thanks for your word. So in awe of you. And God, I pray that as we sing these next few songs that we would look at the words and really, really worship you and sing to you and let it just, just soak in deep down these words and, and what it means in our lives. So we love you. Thanks again. And it's in your son's name. Amen.